Well, I'm Ed Mullins, and welcome back to The Point. Today's special guest is former NYPD Commissioner Raymond Kelly. Um, Commissioner Kelly is the longest serving police commissioner in NYPD history. He has served two terms for two different mayors, one under Mayor David Dinkins from 1992 to 94, and Mayor Michael Bloomberg from 2002 to 2013. Commissioner Kelly, I want to thank you for taking the time out to do this. Um, I, I'm looking at your bio, your history. One of the things that totally stands out to me is you're a graduate of Archbishop Malloy High School. And I didn't go there, I'm a Catholic school product, but I look at it in the sense of a, a, a young boy that went to Archbishop Malloy was able to fulfill a resume that you have. And, and I have to talk about it. A Marine, a Marine Corps Reserve Colonel, you were the Director of Police on the United Nations Mission in Haiti, Interpol Vice President, Treasury Department Under Secretary for Enforcement, Customs uh, Commissioner under President Bill Clinton. You were in the run-in to become the United Ambassador to Vietnam. You have 45 years in the NYPD, served in 25 different commands. And after handling the World Trade Center bombing, you were considered for Director of the FBI. That's a super impressive resume. Um, I, I worked my career under you two different terms, and I can't think of anybody better to speak to today regarding leadership. You know, they say heroes always show up when you need them the most, and we need to hear from you. The rank and file membership of the NYPD is craving leadership, and I, I worked under your leadership. So I welcome you, I thank you, and I want to ask you a bunch of questions that I hope will shine some light to the members of the NYPD to see who Ray Kelly is, uh, what was the mythology behind a lot of the decisions that you made, and hopefully you can inspire them to make it through this very difficult time. Today, you know, I look back as of May 9th, we had 505 people shot in the city of New York, 170 people shot in a four-week period. On Memorial Day, we had nine people shot, a 15-year-old uh, girl died. We've had one-year-old shot, a four-year-old shot in Times Square. The violence just continues to be taking place here in the city of New York. My question to you is, what's happening in this great city? Well, first, let me say thank you very much, Ed, for having me, and thank you for those, those kind words. Uh, there's been a sea change on the streets of our city. Uh, I think there's several reasons for it, but if I had to pick out one, it's the current mayor, Mayor de Blasio. He is not a leader. He is not a manager. He is an ideologue who is shill for far-out left-wing uh, ideas that haven't worked uh, anywhere. If you look at his statements through his term, two terms, it, the thing that comes across most consistently is he wants income redistribution. <laughs> this, is, this is Marxist thinking. Uh, he has, in my mind, totally handcuffed the, the police department. Those restrictions that are on cops are largely coming from City Hall. I understand management has to sort of be the conduit, the, the funnel for it. But uh, things such as eliminating, uh, eliminating the anti-crime units, uh, uh, defunding the police, not having the, you know, the, the class, letting the city council run amok. And the mayor has a lot of leverage over the city council if he wanted to, uh, to uh, exert it. 
So we're in a bad, uh, bad state. Uh, cops are uh, understandably pulling back. Uh, they don't want to put their jobs, their careers, their, their, the well-being of their family on the line by doing things that they did just so effectively a couple of years ago. So I think that's where we are. I would like to say that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that we're going to see some improvements. I certainly hope so. I was born in this city. I'll probably die in this city. Uh, I owe an awful lot to the city, specifically the New York City Police Department, and I hate to see it in the condition that it's in now. Uh, so I, I must say that I am uh, largely pessimistic, at least about the short-term future of, uh, of this city. You were the premier leader of the NYPD and really an icon to the city. At certain points, I think many people will agree that your popularity was probably higher than the mayor. Um, the city never stopped. In the middle of the night, things were happening, cops shot, uh, we had building collapse. Everything that you know occurred in the city. How did you manage all of this? Uh, I remember speaking with you years ago about managing a daily planner and running the city, but you were 24-7. Well, thank you for saying that. <clears throat> I think virtually anything I knew or know about leadership, I learned through the Marine Corps. I was very fortunate uh, to go into the organization at an early age. I had three older brothers who were in the Marine Corps, so I had no choice. I had to, <laughs> had to go in. But it has a unique way of making leaders. Leaders are made, not born, in the Marine Corps' uh, collective brain. So uh, I think I accumulated just a lot of uh, kind of ideas and concepts almost by osmosis. Yes, you study it. Yes, at an early age, you're given responsibility. I was, and I say, fortunate to be in Vietnam. I mean, it was a great experience. You know, if you make it back, there's nothing like being in, in combat, but obviously there's, there's danger there. But I, I think I learned an awful lot from my time in, in the Marine Corps, and I was able to stay in the reserves, too. I stayed for a total of, of 30 years. Uh, what happened with me is I was working in Macy's when I was going to Manhattan College. I needed a job to pay my tuition. And I saw an advertisement for a police cadet program, and I must have been in the chief uh, newspaper, and it was the first class of its kind anywhere in the country. The idea was to get matriculating college students into policing. So I joined the Police Cadet Corps. And one of the requirements of the Cadet Corps in NYPD was to take all the tests to become a, a police officer, which I did. But I also joined the Marine Corps Officer Training uh, Program, which they do during the summers. So I had one 12-week session in, uh, you know, in Quantico, Virginia. So what happened is I graduated from college. I got a commission in the Marine Corps. I was appointed a police officer before I had to go on active duty, and like a week later, I went on active duty in the Marine Corps. So all that timing uh, worked. But again, I want to go back to the training that I received in the, in the Marine Corps. It's a great institution. My son Gregory uh, was a Marine. As I said, my three older brothers, uh, I have cousins and all sorts of other people who uh, are associated with the, with the Marine Corps. So I, that, that I see is a major benefit that was given to me. Can you tell us about the transformation from Vietnam to the NYPD? You, you leave here, join the Marines, you got your college degree, you enter the Marine Corps, you serve, you're in combat, you come back. You know, a lot of Vietnam vets 
were looked down upon at that time. Um, you what know, was that it, like? It was kind of a bizarre experience because there were riots going on in East New York. So they did something in those days that if you did it today, you'd be arrested for. They took the recruits in the police academy, some of them certainly never been in the service, gave us all blue uniforms, gave us guns, and uh, we fired 50 rounds of ammunition. This all happened within two weeks of coming into the police department. And then going out to uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant, going out to East New York, going out to Brownsville, and there were riots going on, cinder blocks coming off the roof, that sort of thing. They matched you up with an experienced uh, cop, but it was, I, I just came from Vietnam, and then these things are coming off the roof. And, Welcome uh, home. You know, but it's, you know, it was such a short period of time that they, they did it, but it, it never happened again today. So the, so the transition was a <laughs> kind of similar situation on the street. Yeah. Did they bring you back into the academy? Yes, they brought they you, what they did is brought you back and you come back for like a week or, or two weeks. You go to classes in the armory in Brooklyn, that sort of thing. And then uh, there's kind of a hodgepodge training that uh, you know, we got, but we got through it and uh, you know, graduated. And then I went to the 20th precinct and uh, uh, went to the youth division. I went to the youth division and kind of drafted me because I had a college degree. In those days, you know, very few did. cops had a college yeah. degree. And then I proceeded, I got promoted to sergeant, my favorite rank, not because it was <laughs> to you, but uh, I had uh, the military points, you know, so I took the sergeant's test when I was a recruit in the academy, and I never really would go into classes because of the situation I just explained to you. But I had these military points and moved me up, and I'm, in three years I got promoted to sergeant. With three years on, on the job? Uh, yeah, well, a total of six years. I had been three years in the service, right. which counted, so counted. and then sure. three years uh, on the street. And then I went to the 23rd prison. You're rising in the ranks. You made sergeant, and as many of us know, when you get promoted, whether you're detective, sergeant, it's, it's a great promotion. You're moving up, you're getting a paycheck, but you continue to move through the ranks to the point that you become police commissioner. As you went and got through each rank, did you ever think anywhere along the line you were going to be the police commissioner? Never mind, twice. No. No. No, I actually was hoping to make sergeant. That's what I, uh, I, I really, I wanted to go to law school. And uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps and I was in the department, I started going to law school. I worked around the clock uh, in the you know, 23rd Precinct and some other places. But I just wanted to get a promotion, and it was sergeant. But the 23rd Precinct and East Harlem, those days were very active. A lot of crime, a lot of drugs. And uh, I was put in charge of the anti-crime uh, unit. They just started forming it. And I loved it. I found it so exciting. Uh, I just uh, it goes to show you what the level of street crime was in, in those days. In one month, we made 27 observation robbery arrests. Wow. <laughs> it's an incredible number, right. you know, but that's the way it was. That, that was the way street crime was in, in those days. And of course, a lot of hard work happened from then until just recently to make the streets much, uh, much safer. Well, a lot changed. But that was, uh, to me, 
I must say, that's when I really fell in love with the, with the department. Many people I've spoken to over the years that have worked in anti-crime all will say that that is the best assignment in the NYPD. Would you agree? Yeah. 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 Well, because, uh, you know, you're seeing things happen right in front of you. You know, I can remember situations where you're following people and going to Western Union office. We use taxi cabs a lot. Right. So we'd be in a taxi cab and see, they got a gun, you know, it's like, I mean, cops don't normally see that, right. you know, because you're in uniform, but when, when you're playing clothes to see that type of, you right out in, you know, riding on the street, you see people slashed, you see, uh, you know, see it, you're, you're the witness. Right. You're the one that, that, that saw it happen. It really is cops and robbers live, it, it's and that's all you do. It's what you, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's what, what most sign cops up for, want to do. You know? the, right, exactly. So I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. I had a, uh, a reunion when I was commissioner with the, the team that I, that I had. And we just regaled each other with uh, lots of stories. Some of them were even true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't go into those stories. <laughs> what was the hardest part about being police commissioner? You, you served two terms. Well, you served under two mayors. Yeah. And, you know, it's certainly not an easy job. It's a 24-7 job, probably a 24-8 job when you think about it. It's just you're always thinking of what's next. Yeah. So what would you say is the hardest part about being the police commissioner? When, when cops are killed uh, in the line of duty. Uh, the commissioner, certainly the mayor was there, but several times it was just me. Take the family in to see their deceased loved one. And uh, you know, I can remember several of them. And of course, what happens in a, in a case like that is they're notified, the family of an officer who was wounded, killed, they're notified by the chaplain. Something's happened to your husband or your son, or whatever. We're going to send someone to take you in to the hospital. Now, depending on where they live, it could be the radio car, or highway. Uh, to a great extent, or helicopter them in, but they don't know what's happened. Uh, There's policy. Um, so they come in, and you have to tell them uh, what happened. And uh, obviously, it's <laughs> tremendous emotional outpouring that, uh, that happens. And then they want to see their loved one, and you, you take them in. You know, when you pull the sheet back, it's a gut-wrenching experience, and I had to do it several times. You did. You had quite a few under a long period of time yep. serving as commissioner, yep. and right. you've had the 9-11 deaths. Um, yeah. You know, the, the numbers are pretty high. Right. Um, there's a couple that I wanted to talk to you about because um, some of them could be considered controversial, like Omar Edwards. Um, yeah, well, Omar was going home, going on vacation, um, African-American officer shot by a white police officer. Yeah. Um, thought he, he was breaking in, into a car. He was in the housing uh, unit on 124th Street in Manhattan between 1st and 2nd Avenue, and uh, he was going home. He had his weapon with him, and his car was parked across 1st Avenue. And as he, as he crosses First Avenue, he sees somebody leaning into his car. He broke the window of his car. So he goes over, says something to him. Anyway, the guy pulls out of the window and, and takes off. And Omar uh, grabbed his gun. He had his gun in his hand. 
and he ran diagonally across 125th Street between the drive and First Avenue. And the anti-crime cops that saw him running with a gun, something was shouted out, and shots were fired. Now, I went uh, to the hospital. He was in Harlem Hospital. And I actually went into the emergency room when uh, they called his death. And they had the surgeon had his hands in his chest, massaging his heart. And uh, it actually, it was Roscoe Brown's son. I don't know if you remember Roscoe Brown. He was a Tuskegee Airman. He was friendly with David Dinkins, who's a pilot in okay, World yes, War II. Sure. But his son was chief surgeon, I believe, at the Harlem Hospital. And that's where, so I, I, you know, I was there when he uh, called. A terrible tragedy. Uh, things happen in policing, you know, that are that not like any other business. No. Um, yeah, it was accidental, but tragic. Yeah. Detective Rodney Andrews and James Nemer, yeah. two undercovers, shot, I believe it was in the back of the head Staten in Staten Island. Island. Yeah. yeah. Yep, the uh, a similar situation, they were brought to the hospital in Staten Island, and the family arrived, the mayor was there, and we took them in and uh, told them. Now, uh, James Nimmer, uh it was a Haitian extraction, and I had spent time in, in Haiti. So uh, Haiti can be very emotional. And other relatives showed up, and there was a tremendous amount of screaming, and understandably, just very, very emotional uh, outpouring. And then uh, Marianne Andrews, who was in the department, was uh, Rodney Andrews' right. wife. wife. You know, she arrived. So it, these things are indelibly uh, in your in your mind. You know, I mean, what do you say? You know, there's nothing you can console people with at this time. It's so fresh that you know, there's nothing you can really you can really say to console them. Russell Timoshenko was oh, yeah. Russian-born immigrant, and and yeah. I'll get into that further. But you know, his mom. I met his mom. He's the only son, and. Then I'll live in the American dream, proud. I have a son who became an NYPD cop. It was also so gut-wrenching. He was shot. It was in 71st Precinct. Right. And he and his partner, they get out to, to stop a car on Lefferts Avenue to get out, and they walk up to the car, and they get out. It's some, the passenger gets out and shoots both of them. And uh, I think it was uh, Brooklyn South, the, the homicides, who showed yes. up and took them to, uh, to the hospital. Kings County, right. The other officer called in uh, the information, and they were uh, they were ultimately arrested. But the most gut wrenching thing about that incident was his mother. He lived for like three days and totally uh, unconscious, right. you know. But his uh, his mother would not leave his side, crying all the time. You know, she just couldn't stop it. And uh, his father, also, both of them from Belarus. Uh, you know, they would bring things to the hospital, uh, you know, to things that, that uh, uh, Russell liked, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And it just, uh, it was quick. three days is a long time, and she would not leave, you know, that, that, that bit. I also remember the 
killing of Bobby Parker and Rafferty. Patrick Rafferty. Sure. At the same time, it was uh, September 10th, Surely 2004. Yeah. We had just finished the uh, Republican National Convention. And they, they went, it was a domestic violence uh, case. And they, uh, uh, this individual got one of the officer's guns and shot, shot both of them. But it was another situation where bringing new relatives in to see, see the bodies for the for the front, telling them what happened and bring them in, bringing them in. I just, uh, you know, I just, I just remember it so, uh, so clearly. Is is there any incident where a NYPD officer was killed that stands out to you more than the others? Something that, I mean, you can't say more tragic than the next. No, I mean they're all. They really are all tragic. They involve so many other people. You know, the ripple effect. Obviously, cops, you know, the cops are always devastated when this happens. You know, yeah, you hear about it, you hear about it, but that's going to happen to me right. or people next to me, you know? Right. But it does. And that's what's really, really joking. Ironically, Bobby Parker and Pat Rafferty were my detectives. I had just got elected the year before, but I used to go out with them all the time. And yeah. you would never think that it would happen. Exactly what you're saying. You would never think that it would happen to these yeah. guys. And when I got the call, I was totally shocked that it happened to them. You know, Bobby Parker was, you know, bigger than life. Absolutely. He was a huge guy, and you just never expected it to happen. That's right. You never expected it to happen to him. Right. Somebody like never that. Did. And they always wore their vest. You know, they yeah. go out, they take their vest. Yeah, so it happens, unfortunately. You know, a prominent businessman gave me two $10,000 checks to both families. And I brought the, ne the next day or whenever I went to the families and gave them those checks. I mean, it, we're always good. The relief fund, the unions are there for money. Sure. But this guy wanted to do it right away, and yeah. I was very appreciative of that. Yeah. Money's not, you know, it doesn't fix to bring it, them back. You everyone know, but, reaches out to help the families. Yeah, and yeah. It's, uh, they want to do something. Right. And we see that all the time. Commissioner, under your leadership, the NYPD became a minority majority. Um, I attribute the diversity of NYPD to your efforts of recruitment. Um, you visited African-American churches on Sunday. You recruited for the department. And ironically, both Al Sharpton and Jimmy Breslin said that was very important to have that being done. Um, you had a 75% approval rating overall and a 64% approval rating among African Americans. And Bishop Seabrook in Brooklyn said to say hello. He also said that you were the only police commissioner to ever come and visit the African American churches. Um, he doesn't understand why that doesn't happen, but he did say to deliver that message to you. So your rela uh, relationship with the black community, your reputation was pretty solid, pretty high. What made you see that, to get out there, to get involved. Uh, you, you made a difference, and you made a difference to the department. Uh, certainly since I came in in 82, the department is probably the most diverse police department in the country. And I've been here long enough to know how it happened, and I attribute that to your efforts. Why? What happened? Well, uh, I think in the, when I was uh, first commissioner, the African-American population department was about 11 or 12 percent. Is low, and we want our one of our goals was to have a department that reflected the population of the city, 
and the population at that time was about 25-26% African Americans. So a test was coming up and I did go to churches and ask them to take the test. But the, you know, the reality is that probably a good percentage of our contacts, probably over 50% of our contacts in this day and age are with African Americans for a variety of reasons. So you want to strengthen that relationship as much as possible. And I think communication uh, is the key, was the key. I would walk down uh, 125th Street myself and maybe one security person. And I do that like every couple of weeks. Uh, I would and answer questions that any people have. It would take me sometimes two hours to get down uh, two streets. I would go to a lot of community meetings. And one thing that I did at those meetings was to always give them straight talk about the fact that the majority of victims of violent crime in this city are African-Americans. And the majority of perpetrators of violent crime, African-Americans. And I want you to know that. I didn't stay, uh, you know, shy away from speaking about that. It was an important message, I think, not, not to back off. What kind of reaction that. did you get to that? Never a negative reaction. No. Never. People appreciated it. Ironically, Peter Zimmeroff, the outside monitor to the NYPD, uh, mentioned a poll that he did in the African-American community of policing and what the feeling was toward the police and 85% approval of wanting more police in their communities. And they're very much aware of the crime of, you know, black on black type crime right. and victims. Uh, so I'm not surprised by your answer. I was just curious that back at that time, if it was the same. Well, they are cowed to a certain extent by activists in the community and some from outside the community they, they don't want them to be a supporter of the police in any way. So they're not going to become public in this issue. They're not going to, if, if this is an anonymous poll, fine. I believe but it if, was, if right. it's a, yeah. you know, something that's made public, I think uh, this fact that there's so many activists out there skews uh, the, the polling. And uh, it's unfortunate. Do you think we're doing a good enough job in trying to blend that relationship between the NYPD and the African-American community, Hispanic community, people of color community. I mean, there's a lot of tension across the country right now, which I personally believe is um, not factual, but the tension is there. The statistics don't back it up. But we're looking at a nationwide crisis of a divide, really, and police being the bad guys. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it is, is a lot of the problems are fueled by the media. They keep throwing fuel on the fire. You know, police can do nothing right. And, uh, uh, and that's, I think you've got to work at it every day and do the best you can to communicate. But right now, as you said, the department is majority-minority. You know, we've got significant population of African-American cops and Hispanic cops. There's not much more that you can do in recruiting because you can tip the department the other way. Right. You want a department, as I say, that's representative of the, this, the most uh, diverse city in the world. There's no city that has diversity. Of, no. of, and at one time we had cops born in the department, and I assume it's close now, born in 106 countries. No other police department anywhere in the world has anything close no. to that. You know, and we've had cops that were born in other countries die on these streets and sent back home to the, those countries 
mm. um, you know, from line of duty debt. Yeah. So people from other countries have come here, sacrificed their blood on the streets of New York, yeah. um, and wearing our uniform. So. And you know, the, uh, in the counterterrorism area, the diversity of the department has been quite helpful, language-wise and even undercover uh, operations. Yeah, I swear you're reading my notes. <laughs> counterterrorism. After 9-11, Mayor Bloomberg's elected, he appoints you to police commissioner, and you brilliantly build the counterterrorism unit, and I believe it was Cohen you brought in from the CIA. Right. Um, during that time, you had 15% fewer officers. Under your tenure as commissioner, there were five plots, none of which were carried out. Commissioner Bratton had two plots, one of plotted attacks, one of which was completed. Commissioner O'Neill had the highest amount of uh, attacks, and Commissioner Shea has one. What was your thinking at that point in time when you built the counterterrorism unit? Um, you brought in Cohen. I'm guessing some of your military background you know, attributed to well, I, a I higher been, level. I'm sorry, I had been in the federal government for that period of time. I was under Secretary of Treasury and I was the head of the U.S. Customs Service. So I was exposed to the talent that the federal government uh, had in its ranks. Um, and I think cops are great and you can teach them a lot, but we didn't have time to learn. Uh, I wanted to get people with that experience into the department as quickly as possible. So we reached out to mostly retirees, but a couple of active folks, to the FBI, the DIA, the DEA, the CIA, all the lettered agencies, and we brought in people. And you mentioned David Cohn, he's terrific, 35 years in the CIA, he did a, a great job. Brought in Frank Labuti, a Marine General, <laughs> said I wanted that. Marine Corps persona there, and he came in and, and ran the counterterrorism uh, operations for us. We had uh, analysts come in from not only different agencies, but different schools. And David Cohn said it was the best analytical team that he, he ever worked with. And the numbers that, that, that we have, that we claim, was on our watch, the Bloomberg watch, we had 16 plots against the city. None of them came to fruition. Some as a result of great work on the part of the FBI, great work on the part of the NYPD, and sheer luck. No question about it. But it was, I think a lot of it came from my exposure to federal government, the talents that, that they have. Now in the department, they have virtually none of those people, and that's fine. My assumption is that the cops have been trained to, to do that, that sort of work. But we, we didn't have the time to... Uh, to do that sort of training? Well, we've gotten hit several times, and you know, people don't talk about it, but we, I don't believe we have the talent pool that you brought in back then. I remember when you did bring it in, uh, it got a lot of attention, and that unit was built up pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and we also assigned people overseas. And they're still there. Uh, so under your administration, you put people in different countries. Mm -hmm and some of them are still there. I think they brought some back. I, I don't know for sure, but um, that put boots on the ground on an incident right. in other countries, and right. that communication worked out pretty well for us. Yeah, and they, their expenses are paid by the police foundation, so it's not tax levy funds that are paying their expenses uh, overseas. And wherever possible, I'm gonna talk about my experience now, sure. wherever possible, 
we sent people back to their the country where they were born, uh, Canada, France, uh, Spain. The officer we sent that was born in in Madrid. We had two Coptic Christian, one uh, police officer, one a lieutenant, the other was his wife. We sent them to the UAE, uh, and it was all meant to increase communication. Tell us what's going on there. Tell us if there's best practices there that we should, you know, we should know about. Um, you know, think New York first, of course. Right. But uh, being, I think it was effective. It was very effective. Yeah. You know, it, it, we didn't have that prior to. It was a combination of a handful yeah. of detectives working with counterterrorism. Right. And it became a more proactive unit. Yeah. They did a lot of intel. Yeah. 1972. Um, were you at the scene of the Cardillo incident in the mosque? Yes. You were. That's a, a hot topic with not many people in rank today, but a lot of people that were around the job back then. Yeah. What transpired? Well, I was in anti-crime. I was in civilian clothes, field jacket, that sort of thing. We were in the 4th Division, 23rd Precinct. The mosque was in the 6th Division. So for whatever reason, we didn't get information right away as to what was happening. Somehow we got it and we went to 116th Street. And it was chaotic. A lot. There were cops, but not a lot of cops. Uh, there was uh, a lot of anti-police rhetoric, screaming and shouting uh, type deal. I did not go in the mosque. I, mean, I knew somebody, the cop that told me that uh, Jack Howe, who was the CEO of the 28th Precinct, had fired a shot in the air. There's actually a picture around him, him doing that. But it didn't happen when I was there. It happened before. Um, so. I can't say that, I, that we did much. It was not a time to hang around in civilian clothes. Right. You know, the mosque had been shut off. Um, Cordillo had, had been uh, removed. Um, yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> a lot of things were done wrong there. No, no question about it. You know, they let those, they let the people go who were, you know, and they stopped and questioned. I assume inside, but the members of the, the mosque, but they let them go. That was, I think, Al Sieben made that decision. If I'm correct, didn't you reopen that case while you were? We, we looked at it, yeah. Did, yeah. Yeah, we did. Oh. It was work with the uh, district attorney's office. Right, and it didn't go anywhere? No. Yeah, it was such a, a distance. And then if the witnesses were, were unreliable, you know, such a distance in time. Right. Yeah, it's difficult to bring something like that back. Yeah. You've had a lot of impressive international posts under different political administrations. We're now dealing in law enforcement across the country with a huge divide and a lot of hatred toward police. How do we fix that? I think it should take a while. I don't think there's any easy answer. I think part of the problem, you mentioned it before, is the media. They keep uh, stoking the flames. Anything that, that demonizes Cops, they're more than willing to run with it. And uh, it, it's very difficult to turn that around. The only thing we can say is we hope cops keep doing a good job and that this somehow changes. Uh, I don't see it changing anytime soon because of people who want to keep these flames going. And it works to their advantage. And uh, till then, we're going to see you know, cops on their, on their back foot. We're not getting the push from the other side. We're not getting a silent majority 
to push back. Most right. people are going about their lives on a daily basis. You're right. Uh, most people don't want to be involved because they're afraid to be involved. They are afraid. There's a you know, little bit of bullyism going on that if you come out and defend it, next thing there's a protest at your house or your business. No question about it. It's, so it's a good I, word. I do Bullying. agree. There, right? People are just not willing to, uh, to stand up. Why? Somehow it's going to come back to hurt them. They're going to be canceled or whatever. Look at the cop who lost his job. The Le LeBron James did right. that ridiculous statement about, you know, police officer, you're next. You're next. The cop did a parody, which was right. perfectly fine. He terminated. Mm -hmm. I mean, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. 20, would you ever think anything like that could happen? Mm -hmm. So the world has changed, and the people are sensitive to it. They know it's changed. A lot of it, I think, though, is I, I think there's a failure of leadership. I really do. When you look at, even across the country, you look at the governor of California, mayors in LA, this mayor here, our governor, um, we, we, right down to some of the ranks in the NYPD. If you stay silent, this continues and no one's pushing back. And I ultimately think that somewhere along the line, the public is going to become the real victim. They already are, they just don't see it. But unfortunately, it's gonna take something pretty draconian for them to you know, step up. You know, Brian Watkins years ago, the subway stabbing, yep. um, that was a turning point for this city. Yep. So, sadly, I, I just think that that's where we're going before people wake up to get involved. Yeah, uh, something like that. Uh, but, uh, again, I don't see any sort of movement that's going to no. bring that uh, about. No. People are afraid. The media is on the side of uh, the people who are pushing these issues. Sure. I would submit that race relations were reasonably good in the early 2000s and uh, even when there's been questionable shootings, you know, the communities by and large have understood that. Now you have members of Congress, that you have the media, the editorial pages are just excoriating police and there's nobody Nobody standing up other than you, yourself. You certainly are a very important voice. But the, there's just not many of you uh, out there. No. So I, am, uh, I don't see it turning around anytime soon. No. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're wrong, too, but I agree with you. I don't see it turning around anytime soon. I mean, a lot of people leaving the city, the tax base, the, the big yep. money businesses are leaving the city. Yep. And what most people don't understand is that their taxes is what keeps the city going. It keeps the social programs going. And they're, they're missing I just read something that's 0.01% of the city's population um, make $55 million or more. They pay 25% of the taxes in New York City. So this notion of driving out people who, who, who make a lot of money, this mayor, I mean, he constantly is berating billionaires. One of the first things he did was he wanted to have pre-K, Citywide, right. you know, noble goal. First thing he did, he wanted to tax everybody who made over five hundred thousand dollars to pay pay for that. This is right after he got into office. Right. So this income redistribution is in his head, and he's been beating that drum for the last seven and a, and a half years. And it's starting to filter to other elected officials. Others are starting to believe that. Where there seems to be a swing towards socialism. That yeah. We, you know, you go to work and you're going to pay us to stay home. Yeah. Right.
Commissioner, what are your thoughts on bail reform and the changes that were made in Albany? How do you see that impact in the current state of crime in New York City, in particular the state itself? The way it's implemented in New York State, it's been a horrendous failure. Here's what happened. Bail reform is a movement throughout the country. And it's worked in other places. The notion is, hey, you shouldn't have to spend time in jail because you don't have money in your pocket, you know. But virtually every other state in the union gives judges the power to make a determination as to the dangerousness of someone. That is not in the law in New York. Correct. Now, they passed this law sort of under cover of darkness. They did it without any public hearings whatsoever. Signed off, of course, by the, by the governor. Comes out, there's a bit of an uproar. They have another session a year later. They make some changes to it by just you know, increasing the number of crimes that you can charge bail for. But they never change the discretion, putting in the judge's discretion to, uh, you know, to keep someone. So that change alone would make a big difference, but they're unwilling to do it. It's certainly been proposed to them. And yeah, I mean, it's only common sense. People, you know, we deal with a recidivist criminal community. Every day. So, no, the people are committing more crimes. Put them out, they're going to be committing crimes. You don't look at their record, in other words. <laughs> you don't even see what this person has done, done previously. Today, it doesn't matter. No, We've it, had it, numerous it, people. Incredibly bad decision. Uh, I don't know. I, they, they're arrogant. I, I think it was the height of arrogance to pass that law the way it was passed. And then to do the amendments the way it was done not putting in the judge's discretion portion. Because this is something that's talked about. Uh, and uh, bail reform works reasonably okay in New Jersey, which has this, uh, this provision. So I think we're going to be stuck with it for a while. Interestingly, a lot of the people, a lot of the elected officials know that it doesn't work. Yeah. They just won't fix it. That's right. They just, it, it, it's, again, it goes back to leadership. You yeah. know you have a problem, but you're not showing the courage to fix it. Yeah. And we're now but left. Constituents are not demanding any change it either, apparently. I don't think they're paying attention to it until That's they become true. victims. You know, I think that the more victims we have or, yeah. you know, actually if the media sensationalized what was taking place yeah. and started to name the elected officials, we'd probably see a change. But that's not happening either. Look at city council elections. Who pays attention to, to them? And they have a lot of power. They, they they've become unhinged in my, my yeah. opinion, but yeah. people are not paying attention to What's coming up, the primary in, uh, on June 22nd. What do you think of the impact of ending qualified immunity on police officers? Very bad idea. Very bad idea. Any of these restrictions uh, that are put on police ultimately mean police will do less. <laughs> it's only common sense. If, in fact, this uh, concept of being able to say, hey, I did something in good faith, and therefore we're not going to hold you uh, to a you know, ridiculously high standard is something that worked for 40 years. Now, all of a sudden, that's being pulled out from other uh, cops. Now, I think in New York City, the uh, city will in indemnify and will represent, but only if they make a determination that you're operating uh, in the scope of your employment. That gives them tremendous uh, discretion. But Eliminating qualified immunity is in the federal bill, the George Floyd bill, Correct. that is in the uh, Senate now being being debated. It's a very, very bad idea. 
there's an extreme push to put that through. Uh, yeah. You have the AOCs and her crew uh, refusing to participate yeah. unless the bill in, you know, incorporates that. Um, there's pushback from Republican side. I, I think there's some neutrality as far as the actual Democratic Party goes to be understanding to it, but that could have a, a drastic effect on policing across the country. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Ironically, we would be the only ones to have lost qualified immunity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it was done with, uh, you know, it was like not, not a lot of fanfare. No. You know, it's not written about. You know, even the impact of it has not, not been analyzed. Like mm -hmm. the Times hasn't looked at it uh, in, in depth as far as I know. But it's a very bad message. Black Lives Matter, to some degree, has changed the country with many will say a protest, and many will say that there were violent protests. You know, we, right here in this area itself, we had riots and, and looting and things along those lives, uh, lines under the banner of, you know, Black Lives Matter protests. How do you see that group and the impact it's having to policing and to the makeup of the country, of the divide of what's occurring right now? Well, at one time, uh, just a little bit after the death of George Floyd, they had tremendous popular support. Nobody knew what they were about. Nobody knew what they did. Corporations gave them huge amounts of money. I think their popularity has now now fallen off. I mean, they are clearly uh, it's sort of a Marxist organization. You know, they're against the core family. Uh, all sorts of things that are sort of fundamental to being an American, they're against. Yet, they've gotten a lot of money. Uh, it's, it's basically a shakedown. Corporations will pay the money. They just leave me alone. Don't don't bother my corporation. So I I don't think they're uh, in any way, shape, or form a positive influence. Uh, I think corporations, in particular, are foolish to pay them off. But apparently, it's still ongoing. You saw where the leader, one of the leaders of. Uh, of Black Lives Matter has just uh, supposedly left the organization after spending millions of dollars Absolutely. on buying pieces of, of, of real estate, sure. you know? That, that's really going to help the, help the cause. I think the state of North Carolina just in the last 48 hours put a ban on Coca-Cola products because they are supporting causes that are pretty much anti-American. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and you, I, I tend to believe we're going to see more of that happen, and at least you're seeing it in the southern states and a lot of uh, the states where people are valuing the American way of life, so to speak. But we had the, the mayor here uh, just a few days after George Floyd's death go out and put Black Lives Matter on Fifth Avenue, yeah. uh, and then I think he did one in each borough, right. you know. Right. This is focus. <laughs> is well, really the mayor, to some together? degree, I mean, I always go back that I was 26 years old wearing a uniform in the streets in New York. He was 26 years old uh, running with the Santeristas in Nicaragua. So, you know, your mindset's at two different yeah. places. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I've never been shy of, you know, attacking him as an anti-police yeah. uh, mayor. And he truly not. is. No, he <laughs> truly is an anti-police. He ran his mayoral campaign against the police. And for um, a large amount of his time in office, he has really divided the community from the police. Like, his words have been very harsh and, and detrimental to policing in this city. Uh, he may say he supports the police, but he truly does not support the police. Absolutely. No. The role of the city's DAs, it, it almost seems that, 
you take an oath to prosecute, you're a district attorney, and now they're all singing kumbaya together and prosecuting what they, they feel like prosecuting, whatever the flavor is of the yeah. day. Um, how do you see their role? Do you see that changing? I, I think we need to elect some DAs. Well, he's, the role of DAs has changed dramatically throughout the country. George Soros has been behind a lot of it in Philadelphia and Los Angeles. San I think Francisco. in St. Louis. Yeah. They have really radical yeah. district attorneys who just made decisions. You know, I'm not going to prosecute really serious cases. I don't think they should have that discretion. Now, I'm surprised here at Cy Vance. Subways are so critical to New York. It's the lifeblood of, of the city. Uh, and if people are not getting on the subways and feel unsafe, the city is not, not going to come back. Yet, we know that the New York DA made a decision not to prosecute any uh, uh, fare beaters or any fare evaders, that, that sort of thing. And that's always been such a fertile field for the police department. You know, I think one in seven people that they stopped for that had, had a warrant on them, one in 20 had a weapon on them, that sort of thing. He just uh, unilaterally, categorically made a determination not to, uh, not to prosecute them. And, and a whole bunch of other low-level quality of what I, I, I find that reprehensible. Uh, that goes back with Commissioner Bratton when he uh, pretty much called hands off and allowed fair beaters to randomly go over to turnstiles and the DAs piggybacked on that. Uh, you and I both know that we're pulling guns, we're pulling people that are wanted for homicides, yeah. but we sent the message that the subways are safe to go and, you know, prey upon citizens, and yeah. now no one wants to touch it. Uh, you're dealing with the city council when you were the police commissioner. I mean, the city council right now um, may be one of the most dysfunctional governing bodies uh, in the country. Uh, what was it like as a police commissioner dealing with city council during well, your time? It was always contentious. Uh, it wasn't as bad, quite frankly, as it is now. Uh, I dealt with uh, Christine Quinn to a great extent. We had a reasonably good relationship. There were just certain things that she had to do to mollify the extreme left of the, uh, of the council, and some of them were still very much around. Uh, but it's always, you know, tug going on. But now it just seems like they, they've lost all uh, the modicum of common sense that, that, that should exist there does not. They're just doing things. The, the uh, diaphragm law, for instance, I mean, ludicrous. You know, there's no Marcus of Queensbury <laughs> ruled when you're trying to arrest somebody. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? You let them go? Yeah. That, that, that's what they want. That, that, yeah. You know, that's what happens. Yeah. The qualified immunity elimination. Anything they can do to restrict and monitor the police and reduce their power. They want to do, like for instance, they moved accident investigation from the, well, they're yeah. trying accident investigation from the police department yeah. to the, the transportation. Yeah. You know, what sense does that make? You know, at two o'clock in the morning, when, when there's an accident and there's uh, DWI involved or whatever, you, you want a civilian investigator to show up to do that? That kind of investigation it just it just doesn't make any sense at all. But anything they can do to reduce the footprint of the police department, you know, who said that the the uh, uh, president of the city council, <laughs> Mr. Johnson, Johnson. Said, my goal is to reduce the footprint yeah. of the NYPD. Yeah. Who in his constituency is telling him to do that? 
I, I tend to think this is their means of getting elected to get the anti-police vote to come out and keep them in office. He's running for borough president now. And, and he's running for controller. Controller, right. right. He's yeah. Running. yeah. And, and now he, he's looking to hold another office when he's a complete failure in city council. Yeah. But you bring up an interesting point here because I think there's a lot of polling going on all the time. So if all of these anti-police uh, issues are uh, putting, being put forward, it must indicate that there's a significant body of voters out there that want this, right. you know? It's, it defies common sense. You think people are concerned about their own safety, but no, it apparently is a substantial number of voters. Look at all the people running for mayor. Every one of them has some anti-police position. You would think at a time when crime is true. sky high that, that that wouldn't be the case, but it is. But we don't get the voter turnout either. You know, de Blasio won with a very small voter turnout. That's right. And we're seeing this in elections, you know, outside the presidential election where, you know, the numbers were huge. But on everyday elections that, that occur, there's very small voter right. turnout. Yeah. And I, it, it seems that they're attacking a specific base because that's the voter base that comes out. They're the ones that are going to turn out. Right. Right. The average working person is going about their life, and they figure it doesn't matter. Yeah. And Even look at the ballot. Look at the, the, the choice situation now where, yeah. uh, you know, who choice asked ranking. for that? They slipped and they said, that well, through. It's supposed to eliminate a runoff. Well, why not have a runoff? Right. <laughs> what, who, who, where's the lobby not to have, have a runoff? Yeah. Uh, supposedly this, is in theory, brings the, the voters further to the left. I'm not, not surprised. But by it, it makes no sense yeah. to have this type of election format. They're making a move also of putting social workers to handle the mentally ill. Now, in some cases, I can see that, but I think that you and I both know what happens when you go and handle an EDP job. It could go very nicely, or it can really go uh, out of control. Uh, what I'm getting is feedback is social workers do not want to handle these jobs. And this is becoming a problem. This was tried in the 80s when I was in Brooklyn, and also when I was in emergency service. Uh, they don't want to do it. Uh, they, they were afraid. They want the police with them all the time. These people, you know, there's 4% of the population, they say, has serious mental deficiencies that make them violent. They don't want to run into those people. And it always amazed me when I was in emergency service how well cops handle those jobs. It's amazing. People cooking lies, standing mm. on the table naked with the mm. machete. Yeah, the cops go in and mm. just talk them out of it and just, you know, handle it. There's, there's, I think I read where there's 118,000 EDP jobs a year. A year. And obviously, emergency services handling the vast majority of those. And they do a great job. They're, they're emergency medical technicians. They're emergency psychological technicians. They get a lot of training. And they do a very, very effective job. But what that just casts aside with that is that emergency service who has all the skills and all the training to do that right. is often called off the job and that's where we run into a problem and you know unfortunately that was one of the incidents that occurred with the sergeant barry who, who called him off well the sector car responds they get there and it's not a violent edp on the serious violent edps a sector car will have handled it and you know they they move on the bus comes takes them out of there and that's become the common practice um, I've been pushing the police commission to not allow that to happen. Yeah. And we would avoid having these tragedies simply because emergency service has the skills and the equipment to handle Absolutely. stuff like that. 
homelessness and in mentally ill is, is well, a mentally ill may be running a city in New York. Homelessness is running throughout the city of New York. What do you think could be done about that? Well, I think that homelessness is not a real issue. It is, they, they sort of cover up the fact that there's many, many people with severe mental problems on the streets. It's not a question of just getting them an apartment someplace. They need treatment. They need, many of them need to be institutionalized. Now, we know in the 70s we eliminated virtually all of those institutions. There's some beds left, but certainly not many. We need more places to put seriously ill people. I think we need a large number of mental health professionals to hit the streets, sort of do an inventory on What's who's out there. Out there. Right. You know, have a record on this guy. They, you know, these people are not going away. They're the guy on the 14th Street subway station. He's going to be there yeah. for a while. So get an a inventory, if you will, of people that, are, that, are, uh, that need help. They definitely need help. You see them walking down the street, you know. Nobody's going to go near them. You're afraid of them, and there's no real help available for them. You know, Thrive, the whole thing that uh, Mayor's wife was supposed to be in charge of, it, it never worked, but the whole thing was sort of an informational program. It was never geared to handle the seriously ill people who need that help. It was just kind of, you know, think good thoughts type stuff. And they still can't say where the billion dollars went. No, that's... Probably in with the Kennedy assassination. We don't know who did it, but there's a billion dollars missing out there someplace. Uh, legalization of marijuana. How do you see that as the impact of the I, I, I didn't like it. Uh, I think we don't know enough about marijuana. The studies about marijuana and its effect have always been done, in my uh, experience, and did a little research on it, with advocates, either for or against. Some institution, like uh, you know, National Center for Health or CDC, do an objective examination. What is the long-term effects of, uh, of using the marijuana? The other question is, how high do we want society to be? I was out in Colorado a couple of years ago, right after they had passed the law, my wife and I, and we were in uh, a cab, and the cab driver was, was driving <laughs> 10 miles an hour. You know, I mean, the guy was clearly high, you know, I mean, so you take that, I mean, your bus drivers, your service workers, without any regulations, we're going to have a very high society, no pun intended. We did a study in Colorado. We sent people out to did do a study, yeah. and um, it, it's really a failure that's out there. It, it encouraged the cartels to operate um, under a legal atmosphere. It, it killed business, the restaurant business. People didn't want to go out to dinners with their families because... Other people at the table were sitting there high. Homelessness grew, mental ill issues grew. Hospitals didn't get the resources to care for it. Uh, monies that were supposed to be generated, they, they thought we'd put into the state, were actually going out in other areas to treat these conditions. And I, I tend to think, you know, I heard the governor say the revenue coming in would be an asset to the state, but I don't think anybody did their homework on this. And you still have people selling it illegally, right? Correct. And they're selling it illegally under a banner that says it's legal. So you have complete yeah. cover. How, yeah. how do we know what, what's right, really right. taking place? And we also have the driving under the influence. There's really no test. There's no test, right. To measure right. someone who's you know high. 
yeah. if they're doing something with their cars. So it's become a big problem overall. Yeah. Um, should anti-crime be reinstated? Oh, of course, absolutely. It was a huge mistake. I'm assuming that came from City Hall. I don't think any experienced the police executive would make a determination to eliminate anti-crime. Just as you said before, it's been an effective tool for decades. It is, you know, they're the hunters who hunt the hunters, you know, and and you need that. You need that deterrent. You need to have the criminals look over their shoulder and wonder if they're being watched. But now, you know, all bets are off. You know, if, they, if the radio car is not on the street or coming down the street, that's it. There's no cops around. There's clearly a correlation between the time frame that anti-crime was disbanded to current day shootings and violence. Sure. Um, it, it went wild ever right. since then. And uh, Bishop Seabrook, I was with him that day, and he said, Ed, uh, the only impact this is going to have are on my people. We're the ones who are going to be shot yeah. and killed. Yeah. And he said it that day when it, you know Commissioner Shea announced it. And again, he, he won't reinstate it. Um, you know, I know some people ask him for it. I've said it several times. Um, we've worked it. We know what it does. It certainly saves lives. But yeah. uh, until that comes back, every perp out there knows that there's no plainclothes cops in the street. And you have to wonder what, if it does come back, what manner, what, what controls will be on it. I don't know? know if it'll be as effective as it used yeah. to be. Uh, they'll probably sugarcoat it somehow. But just the, the idea that it's out there, you want to give them pause for thought. Correct. Right. You, you mentioned, you know, the, uh, the city and what was taking place and your thoughts on the mentally ill. And, you know, I, I, it raises a question I have here of what advice would you give to the next mayor and police commissioner? But first, has anyone ever reached out to you to ask what you would think, I mean, you've done this for so long, you, you know, yeah. you're probably one of the most popular figures in the city. Um, you know, uh, everything has become so uh, politicized. Uh, one administration is not going to ask the past administration what they did, or they're not even going to keep it. There's change for change's sake. For example, we had the sort of control training going on every day right. in the Bloomberg administration, some way, shape, or form. Yeah. One of the first things that the, the Blasio administration did was stop that this sort of control training. So yeah, they had some for the specialized for the task forces, but for the vast majority of, of cops, they haven't, for seven years, there was no disorder control training. Nothing. I, I, anyway, I put some information in the channel that I think got them to realized that the training wasn't done anymore. This is after the George Floyd demonstrations. But sure. you saw how chaotic it was for the department. They were not prepared. Uh, they, they were not in any sort of wedge formations or, you know. Uh, and we learned that, that lesson the hard way in Crown good. Heights right. and in other locations. And we did manuals. There's, there's books out there as to how to, how to do that. But no, they stopped this sort of control training for no reason. They started up again. But, uh, they started up because of the Tish James report. And you well, know, she pretty much took the chief of department to the woodshed on a report that, you know, you're in charge, you lost control of the city. Yeah. Um, you know, and the cops, I mean, we were in Randall's Island every day when they were forming up to go out. And, you know, the cops were demoralized. They, they get hit with everything, a lot of stand down orders. And we pretty much surrendered the city, and that 
that's just not something we're used to doing. Well, uh, remember, they, we arrested, we being my administration, right. arrested hundreds of people on the Brooklyn Bridge. We never let them take the bridge. Yeah. One of the first things they did in the Blasey administration was give them the FDR drive, give them the bridge, shut down streets. That was never done before. Now it's standard procedure. Well, that was part of, and, and I know it's a little bit later on, but you're you bringing it up. The, when de Blasio first came into office, we surrendered the streets. The protest uh, took over the sidewalks. Businesses had to shut. And this went on for days, and there's plenty of footage out there of what do we want, pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon. Days later, Officer Lou, Officer Ramos assassinated. Um, I blame de Blasio. I know many cops blame de Blasio. His words had an impact. Um, I, I find it unthinkable that an individual came from Baltimore, past numerous cities, to come to New York City to make a statement. Ironically, I had forwarded information to counterterrorism that there was a group, or I forget exactly, um, an individual from Baltimore supposedly going to kill a cop. They had no idea about it. That was about a month before. And I put it out in an email and it sent a wave across the, the city with it. But at the end of the day, we gave up back then. And two cops were executed under this mayor. That had a negative impact to policing across the country. Um, NYPD members turned their backs on the mayor. I've never seen that before. Um, I'm very proud that they did. I think that it sent a statement to at least push back. But I don't know if in your tenure of being in the NYPD, did you ever experience anything like that? Nothing. You, nothing. No. Nothing even close to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you recall that Brinsley, who was the shooter of uh, Ramos and, and Lou, right. said that he was going to put wings on pigs, and it was sort of in response to some of de Blasio's statements about Eric Garner, I believe, and he had to give his son the talk and that, and that right. sort of thing. And that, again, that was adding fuel to the fire. Uh, and these cops, you know, just assassinated, sitting in their, in their radio car. Words matter, yeah. you know? Yeah. You gotta be careful with what you say when you're in a leadership position. We also gave, we kept giving, we kept giving the city, giving the city, and it's the old, you know, take the hand, get the arm type routine. And yeah. uh, I think we sent a message back then, or he sent a message that it was okay to come to the city of New York and do what you want. Yeah. The end result is we had two dead cops. It never should have happened. It just right. shouldn't have happened. Right. Comstat has been a controversial issue in a lot of ways. Um, I personally think it's a good tool, but I think it's been abused to some degree. Um, it's a crime-fighting tool. I'm curious what your thoughts are about Comstat. I think it's an effective tool. I think generally good. One of the things that happened to it, it became a bit of a show. <clears throat> and I had a head of a union come to me and, and, and say that. It was one of these situations where people from other agencies were brought in and then there was some abusive talk about a, a commander, that sort of thing, like trying to embarrass him in person. My view of Comstat is it should be like a family. You know, we're talking among ourselves. You know, we don't want to denigrate somebody in front of anybody from the outside. You know, district attorney's offices. And then at one time, they actually had just people coming in 
look how great we are. Look at how great this, this system is. And it bothered uh, a lot of people. So we shut it down in that regard. Probably not totally, but, uh, but it is an effective tool. I just don't think it should be used as a vehicle to uh, abuse yeah. or diminish people. Well, that's always been a negative with it. A lot of people have problems with that. You mentioned Crown Heights riots earlier. Um, you were there. You were the commissioner at the time for, was it was out of town at the time? So no, I, I wasn't yeah. a police commissioner then. I was the first deputy first commissioner. First deputy commissioner, but you had the... Well, uh, yeah, I can tell you what happened right. very quickly. Um, the, um, what happened is the police executives on the ground there were reading the tea leaves and thought that they were politically correct. You had a black mayor, you had a black police commissioner, and then a black chief of the department. So I was told specifically by Lee Brown, do not get involved in the operational things. He was concerned about me sort of supervising Bob Johnson. Okay, Bob Johnson left. He, he pointed a new uh, chief of the department, it was Dave Scott. Yeah. He called me in and said, don't, don't do that again. So I'm not in the chain of command. Um, what happens is, well, we were not properly organized, and the department wasn't to respond quickly to, uh, to an event. But um, two days after this thing started, I hear a 1013 call by car one. They don't call it car one anymore, but this was, this was the police commissioner. So they were throwing rocks at the, at the car. So I go out there. Dinkins and uh, Lee Brown are in the school and the uh, school on the Eastern Parkway. And Lee Browns was saying, these are kids, these are kids, how come you can't handle it? See, he, he, and he had a right to be annoyed because the kids were running roughshod. So I asked him, would you want me to be uh, involved in it? Yes. So anyway, it was, it was late in the afternoon. The next morning I had a, and shots were fired at a helicopter that night and you know, shooting going on. So the next morning, I had like a 7 a.m. meeting with the people on the ground there. They, made, they, they gave answers that were just asinine. It's like, okay, why didn't you, the mayor was going over to Gavin Cato's house. Why didn't you have any cops there or cops on the fire escape? Too dangerous. That's <laughs> what we do. You're a police force. That's what we do for a living, right. you know, and, and that kind of stuff. Why didn't you close off the streets while good people trying to get to work? You know, ridiculous type of answers that I think they thought that I may have wanted to hear. So anyway, what we did is we brought in 50 horses. We took wagons, patrol wagons, and uh, just sealed off the street. So you can you make a rest at your leisure, you know what I mean, rather yeah. than having people run through the streets. Again, a lot of them were 14, 15 years old. So and we made, you know, I think a couple hundred arrests, and that was it. It was over in, in one day. But I felt that like Dinkins and, and Lee Brown, out of town, you know. They were not well served by us. We, we should have done a much better job. And after that, we then had those manuals develop about uh, crowd control and how to respond. It's interesting you say that because you don't hear that story as much. And it was the old out of town Brown. And, you know, you 
were in Crown Heights. Your name's always associated with Crown Heights. I know why it was associated, because no one else was around that weekend. And, um, you know, you were cut out of the food chain of... Yeah, well, I put it, it's in, my, in a book that I wrote, right. but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, they, they were <laughs> trying to figure out what was best for them in their career, right. uh, rather than taking firm action when it was needed. Yeah. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Denny Pantaleo, the Gardner case, what are your thoughts on that whole case? Uh, the, I, I think it was a decision, his termination was a decision made by City Hall, that the department was forced to terminate him. If you read the findings of the U.S. Attorney of the Eastern District, I think it's clear, in my view, he'll get his job back. Uh, it, it says that, uh, for instance, in the, I think he's, Adam Zappa will say, was only covered for seven seconds, uh, that he said uh, he couldn't breathe but no, there was no pressure on his neck when he when he said it. When he right. said that right. uh, he died from a heart attack. Right. He was a hugely obese uh, person. So uh, I think he should not have been terminated. Do you think we should have had better relationships with the you know community? Because a lot of that got out of control. And you know, in my view, we didn't have the relationships with the community in order to explain it the way you just explained it. I think a lot of people ran from that case and not getting in front of it to explain what really took place there. You know, that is an important lesson in policing. You've got to get out there, tell people as quickly as possible what we know. And this is what we don't know. Here's a classic example of that happened in Ferguson uh, where uh, Michael Brown, Michael Brown. Is, is shot. Now, Michael Brown, uh, we later find out, reached into the car of a police officer, grabbed his collar. How do we know that? His DNA is found mm -hmm. on his collar. He grabbed his gun. How do we know that? DNA is found on his gun. But nobody is a spokesperson for it. So after the shooting, Michael Brown's companion is, is de facto the spokesperson. He lies about everything that happened. Michael Brown, he did nothing wrong. He put hands up, that, that sort of stuff. So instead of getting out there, the chief, I think, was totally negligent in his duties. He just kind of disappeared. There was no real statement until the next day. As we spoke about, you have Michael Brown's body on the ground for four hours. That is just misfeasible. You move that body. You don't, forensics are not that important. You get that body out of there <laughs> instead of you know, fermenting the crop. So there was no story out there as to what happened for the masses. They just responded to what this kid was saying, right. and it later proven to be all False. lies. Right. You know, with the with the uh, uh, the grand jury. Uh, I think they just weren't able to handle that type of incident overall, which they've proven that they couldn't handle it. I personally called out there a couple of times, looking to speak to the PBA if they needed help, and and there was no message coming out. There yeah. was no no That's information, right. anything coming out. Yeah. And you know, New York. These things happen somewhere along the line. You got you know, some way of getting, uh, getting information, but yeah. it, it just but doesn't happen. I, I, the police chief of St. Louis, who I knew him and I forget his name now, they had a shooting about two weeks after Michael Brown was shot. He was on that TV like in right away. forty minutes afterwards. Right. Here's what happened. You know, it was perfect, and there was no no problem after it. So you got to get out there quickly. Get in front. 
put the word out as to what happened. The big question I got for you for today, I told you, is that the members of the NYPD, they're, they're craving leadership, they're craving direction, they're, they're working in horrific times. What message can you give them to give them some type of hope to get them through each day to stay together and get to the end of what we need to get to in order to make this city right? Well, I think policing is such a noble calling. We know so many people who've done heroic things, have kind things, that's, that sort of stuff that never gets, never gets recognized. I'm proud of everything that I did and, and I feel fortunate to be, uh, have the history in the NYPD. Uh, I think cops, it's a difficult time to be a cop now, no question about it. I think they've got to do their job, but I think they have to be careful going beyond doing their job, going that extra step, extra mile. You've got to, which cops have always done. But now you unfortunately can put your, your well-being and your family's well-being uh, on the line. So do your job, but be careful in terms of going, taking that, that extra step. Uh, there's a lot of discretion in, in policing. And now you want to make it work for you. But it's a, this is a great institution. It's a great profession. We're going to get through this. It'll be not certain how it's going to change, but it's, it's going to change because we can't sustain this amount of animosity and derision aimed at the police for, for us to function. The police hold us together. We, we need it as a, as a society. So it, it's going to get better. Uh, can't say when, can't say how, but when you look back, certainly in my view of history in the department, I've been around a long time, you know, there were, there were incidents, there were people, there were chiefs or commissioners that maybe we weren't too crazy about, but it all sort of, sort of worked out. So I guess the message is hang in there. Things will get better. Do you miss the NYPD? Yes, of course. I can tell you unequivocally the NYPD misses you. Oh, thank um, you. I've been through 13 commissioners. You by far are the ultimate commissioner. Um, mm -hmm. It's been a privilege working under you, and, and I thank you for everything you did for the members of the NYPD and for taking the time out to do this interview. Thank you. Thank you. Really thank you very much, it. Eddie. And once again, I'm Ed Mullins, and thank you for watching.